Thanks, Evan. All right, good morning, everyone. Hello, welcome to Church 21. My name is Stephen Polino. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I have been described as an acquired taste. For those of you who do know me, uh, you would say very just willingly and quickly that I'm quite literally the most humble person you have ever met in your life. I go to Walmart, and this is actually, I go to Walmart a lot. This is actually a big problem for me. Every time I'm there, people stop, and I have to fill out signatures, and they're like, oh, look, there he goes, Stephen, the most humble person who's ever lived, and they just want to be in my presence. Half of my day, for the longest time, I was just I was just spending half of my day answering and responding to fan mails and emails about just how humble I am and how great and incredible I am. I had to, I had to delegate the task off to my wife, and then she got, she got uh, too occupied with it. She's not nearly as selfless or humble as I am, so we had to hire a secretary to take care of all of this mail, and uh, it's quite a burden. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty great. And I like telling everybody about it, and everybody already knows anyways. So please, if you want to talk to me after the service and just remind me of how great I am, that, that's fine. I'm used to it. Uh, isn't that gross? Isn't that, like, I feel slimy after saying that. I, I feel like it's, uh, like, I cannot begin to apologize to you and clarify to you how much I'm joking just because of how slimy I feel about that. Arrogance is something that is deeply repulsive. It's repugnant. It's gross. Who of you would want to hang out with somebody who acted like that? How many of you have best friends who are just like that? How many of you just love it when you you get the incredible opportunity to be around people who cannot stop talking about themselves? Isn't it such a great way to spend your life in your day? Um, I'm trying to embarrass myself a little bit here because I want you to be able to listen well as I preach to you today about the dangers of arrogance. Arrogance is something that so deeply infects us in ways that we don't even realize sometimes. We look at Mark chapter 8, and we see the Pharisees come to Jesus. The Pharisees were this group of religious leaders during the time of Jesus, and they were slimy. They were scumbags. I don't know how else to say it. They were, they were obnoxious. They were arrogant. They were deeply infatuated and obsessed with themselves. And that's why... They never saw Jesus for who he truly was. You will never see Jesus or be able to understand Jesus for who he truly is until you humble yourselves. It's such a dangerous place to be in such deep arrogance towards Jesus. And we're going to explore how it's a lack of humility a lack of humility, not a lack of proof or evidences for God, but a lack of humility that prevented them and prevent us from seeing Jesus for who he really is. That's the first challenge that this text provides us with. And the second challenge uh, is it, it comes in a question and it comes in a warning. The question is, do you not remember? I want to invite you today to deal with this question that Jesus prevents, presents to you. 
And the second part of your challenge is a warning. Beware of the leaven, of the evil, of the Pharisees and of Herod and of this world. We're going to talk about who Herod is in a moment. For believers, I want you to ask yourselves, why do I sometimes, or even right now, in this moment, feel so spiritually stagnant? Why do I feel like a flat lake with no filtration, covered in moss, serpents slithering through it? Why am I so despondent? Why can't I conquer sin in my life? Why don't I? Why? How am I with Jesus supposed to be overflowing with joy and peace and yet so empty, so depressed, so panicked, so anxious, numb, out of control, angry, apathetic? See, your challenge is different, but it's also rooted in the same problem, a lack of faith in Jesus for who he is. The question is intrinsically simple. Do you not remember? I want to invite you to deal with that question too today. First, I want to just say a quick prayer, okay? Holy Spirit of the living God, it is you who humbles us. It is you who works in our hearts so that we can understand you. And I invite you here to pour out your spirit, pour out yourself, pour out your wisdom on these people today so that they can hear and receive with gladness the beauty of your word. Sometimes, God, we have to break down before we can rebuild. And I pray, Lord, that your words will deeply encourage and fortify and strengthen and rebuild the hearts of those who are suffering, the hearts of those who are despondent and stagnant, the hearts of those who are weak in faith and not remembering you, Lord. Work, please, upon this people. Heal us, God. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Mark 8, verse, beginning in verse 11, we see that the Pharisees came and they began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. A better translation of this is that the Pharisees came and they came with the intention to argue with him. They didn't just come and start arguing. They came to argue with him, seeking from him a sign. They, and what they wanted, this word sign appears throughout the final book of the Bible, which is called Revelation, where we see God revealing himself to all of humanity in the return of Jesus. And this, this word sign means that what they were coming for to Jesus was a literal beam of light popping out of the sky, resting right on Jesus, accompanied with a loud, booming voice from heaven saying, this is him, this is the Messiah. That's what they were looking for. And so they come to him with the intention of seeking that. Why? It says to test him. With malice and arrogance, they showed up at the table already doubting. They didn't come to find out who Jesus was. They had no intention of trying to see if this was possibly the Messiah. They showed up to trip him up so that they could get him in a aha, gotcha moment where there was no beam of light that came down from heaven. I find it interesting, too, just, just while we're on the topic, that that kind of already happened. 
If you read earlier in the accounts of the Gospels, when Jesus is baptized, he first submits fully in humility to obedience to God. What happens? The sky opens up. A beam of light comes down. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. I wonder as I read this how many of these Pharisees or these, this, just any of the people who were there who were like, oh yeah, I, I want to see a sign. I wonder how many of them had already seen that moment. Even before they asked, they doubted. How interesting is that? Is that you? I have a friend who once told me, even if God did show me a sign, I wouldn't believe. And it made me realize something. The, that, that's it. That's it. The heart of what that friend was telling me is that he lacked humility to deal with what Jesus came to earth to deal with, our sin problem. A beam of light coming out of the sky won't convince you if you already don't want to be convinced. So entirely sure of themselves were the Pharisees that they could not even handle the possibility of being wrong. A question that I like to ask people I find it just such an interesting question. It shows humility very quickly, whether or not somebody is humility, humble or arrogant really quickly, and it also just begs a lot of other really deep questions. It's just such a, an interesting question. I want you to explore it right now for yourselves, okay? If what you believed, let's just say about anything, if what you believed wasn't true, would you want to know? If what you believed wasn't true, would you want to know? I, I think so, right? I think that it's very easy. The ramifications of that question are quite large. What if the color green was actually yellow, small scale? What if yield actually said advance? What if merge actually meant slow down and stop and try to get in the highway going 40? It doesn't. It doesn't mean that. It means speed up. That's what merge means, <clears throat> FYI. So anyways, what if what you believed wasn't true? Would you want to know? What if all of this stuff about God, what if all of your preconceived notions, your systematic little worldviews, your philosophy, your ideologies, your political perspectives, what if they were all wrong? Would you want to know? Until you come to a point of humbling yourself and saying, maybe, I'm afraid to tell you that you might never really understand Jesus, just like how these Pharisees came to him. There was no, there was no, hey, you know that guy who's out, out there? He was wandering around the wilderness now, but then he came into the villages and he's healing blind people, people who couldn't walk. He's making them walk now. He purified the temple. He fed 7,000 people off 
four loaves of bread. He fed another 4,000 people off seven loaves of bread. Do you think that this guy could be the Messiah? Maybe? They didn't, there was none of that. There was none of that thought pattern for the Pharisees. They showed up without humility, already doubting. And you know, the interesting thing about Christianity is that the essence of is is humility. It is humility. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to put the wise to shame. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Jesus became wisdom. He became righteousness. He became sanctification. And he became redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. The reason why you can't see God until you humble yourselves to him is because humility is who he is. Humility is not weakness. It's the essence of the personhood of Jesus Christ. It's an attribute of his character and characteristic of his identity. You can't separate the virtue or ideal of humility from the person of Jesus. And I'm so sad that I have to describe to you what humility is. It's an attribute that's scoffed on by our culture. It's seen as a waste of time. Humility is misconceived by the large majority of civilization in the West. People say, why should I serve others? Why should I let people say mean and untrue things about me without responding or having something to say in return? Why should I accept being mocked? Why should I be unfairly dealt with instead of getting back and having retribution and justice? No one can talk to me that way. No one can tell me what to do. No one can push me around. No one can identify me as who I want to be or tell me who I am or what I must do. All of these things are a lack of humility. Humility, alternatively from all these things, is it's a... It's a state of heart in which you can accept what is done to you unfairly instead of seeking to be even. It's not about a lack of strength. Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus wasn't, he was docile, right? But he wasn't repressed. He wasn't a coward, He wasn't lacking ambition. I think that's another way that we misconceive humility. People think, oh, you can't be be humble and ever succeed in life, right? You got to cut throats and and, or go for the throat. You know what I mean. You got to trample. You got to be better. You got to succeed. You got to be the top. You got to be better than everybody else. But no, that's not Jesus at all. His humbleness, his, his humility was astounding. Out of obedience to the Father, he humbled himself all the way to death, He let himself die. He took it gladly with joy. Jesus, I mean, God came to this earth. He walked among us. He did 
miraculous signs right in front of our faces. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He helped those who were broken. It said of him that a bruised reed he did not break. All those who were suffering, spiritually broken, feeling unwanted, unloved, unwelcomed, rejected, hated, Jesus received them with a compassion that I will never be able to understand. None of us will be able to understand. He continued to serve, just pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and giving and loving. And in return, he was treated with contempt and he was treated like garbage and he was murdered although he was innocent. The purpose of Jesus is that he came to the world to deal with sin. It was our sin that demanded that Jesus die. It was our sin that murdered him. It was our sin, the sin that so just quickly and completely entangles us and controls who we are. That same sin that was in the Pharisees that they just could not handle it. They couldn't handle how good Jesus was. They hated him with a deep malice because he was going against all of their little safety boxes. Everybody wants Jesus on their side until it conflicts with their opinions. That's what happened to the Pharisees. He started to conflict with their opinions of how things had to be done, of the rules and the statutes. He started pointing to the deeper issue with all of us. How sin is in all of us. He pointed to how, you know, he said, as an example, you have heard you shall not murder, but I tell you anyone who looks at his brother or anyone else and is so angry with them that they want to punch them in the face has already committed murder. He brought the level of what sin is down to a place where we can all relate if we can humble ourselves and acknowledge that we need help from this problem. What does Jesus do? What's his, what's his response to these people Seeking a sign. It says that he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. In the original language of the Bible, which is Greek, and how this is written, this sentence reads a little bit differently. It is an absolute, emphatic no. His sighing carries this connotation of a deep disappointment, some anger, sure, some frustration, but just a, a really big, bad, sad. He's so upset. I wonder if Jesus was thinking, do you not see all the ones I've already done? I wonder if Jesus perceived the deeper level of what was going on here. He knew that they were coming to just test him. They wanted to say, ha ha, got you. He's so sad by that. 
You can't understand God until you humble yourself to see Jesus for who he really is. And he answers with this emphatic, no. In the original language, like I was saying before I got off there, the sentence reads better, if a sign should be given to this generation, may I die. Or modern translation, I'll be darned if you get any sign out of me. No. Be warned. Be warned. I want to read to you uh, something that I find really relevant. It comes out of Luke 16. It's a, beginning in verse 19. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It says this, and it's talking just directly about signs, okay? So I'm going to summarize it. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Mean, that means that he could eat whatever he wanted to for any meal. That's, how, that's how just how filthy rich he was, right? He had everything that he possibly needed. He's just rich, 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 having a great old grand time up in his little castle. Everybody's serving him. He's full of himself, all this, right? And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, like these deeply uncomfortable wounds and like openings, kind of like... Um, blisters or ulcers. He's covered in those. And he desired just to be fed with whatever fell from the rich man's table. He's just outside the gate just waiting for like any possible crumb, any like corn husk that gets thrown outside that he can gnaw on. He desired to be fed with whatever fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, which was not comfortable to say the least. So you got these two people, one's having a, an apparently great life, and the other one's having an apparently terrible life. But guess what? They both die. Shocker. They both die. It says that the poor man died, and he was carried to, by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man died and also was bur buried. And in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So we get the picture here. Rich man has a great life, but dies and goes into the eternal torment of hell. The poor man has a terrible life and dies and is received by God's grace to heaven to be with Jesus in eternal peace and joy forever. And the rich man looks out seeing Lazarus across the chasm and he called out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So he's suffering just so terribly. He's so hot. He's beaten up by the flames. He's just in absolute anguish, writhing in torment of eternal misery, and he just wants Lazarus to come down and dip his finger in water and put it on his tongue so that he can have a moment of relaxation. But Abraham responds to him, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. It's done. You got good things in your life. 
he got bad things in his life, and this is done. It's over. There is a finality to death. There is also a spiritual finality to death. And so, I'm getting to the point about signs. The rich man says, well, then I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. I want him to go and warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Please send Lazarus up. Make him appear to my brothers. I don't want them to end up like this. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This is it. The Bible, preaching, the testimony of Christians being shared with you. This is the sign that you get. This is all that is needed to hear in order to have faith in Jesus and thus be saved from the consequence of your sin and be healed and be restored to God and have peace with him so that you are no longer in the literal torment of the burden and slavery of sin on this earth. This is it. This is the sign. But the rich man said, no. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's not enough. He says, preaching isn't enough. The word isn't enough. The testimony of believers isn't enough. But if somebody goes to the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the word, if they do not listen to other Christians sharing the gospel with them, if they do not listen to the word going out, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. They will not even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. See, faith with proof is not just, it's not real faith. Faith that demands proof, faith that's based on proof is not faith. It's just veiled doubt. It's just covered up doubt. It's just how you justify and reason the things that you think. Faith is different. Faith is a a leap that begins with the humility of recognizing Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do about your sin problem, and then believing, jumping into that leap of faith, is believing that you need it, believing that you need to be forgiven, believing that in every way that we are broken, Jesus was complete and has come to restore and heal and purify and free us from slavery to sin. I want to invite you to deal with this right now. I want to invite you to ask yourself the question, if you don't believe in Jesus, what if everything you knew, everything you believed in was wrong? Would you want to know? I want to invite you to ask Jesus, those of you who are despondent, those of you who are struggling to believe, those of you who feel like you're weak in faith, 
Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. That was the cry of one of the disciples of Jesus who literally saw all of the miracles. He walked with Jesus. He talked to Jesus. He was right there, firsthand witness, and even he struggled with faith. Be encouraged. It's okay. It's okay. I want to invite you to ask Jesus to help you. I want to invite you right now to literally pray in your heart and in your spirit that Jesus will help you believe. And as we move on to the second challenge, I want to invite you to prepare yourself with everything that you've heard to just, just let it, just let it go. Let all your self-defense mechanisms go. Let all your self-justification go. And ask Jesus to help you hear this warning. The passage moves on. It says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. The disciples are in the boat after Jesus says no about the sign, and he leaves them. He gets into the boat and goes to the other side. And the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Okay? And so Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they're in the boat, and they're like, guys, we don't have any food. I'm so hungry. And they're probably, like, bickering about it, right? Mark, you're supposed to buy the food, man. Why'd you forget? Why do you just, like, always forget, Mark? Sorry, JoJo, for the eye contact of that. It must have been uncomfortable. They're just, like, probably bickering about it, blaming each other. And then Jesus, out of nowhere, he says, hey, guys. He hears what they're saying. He's like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples are kind of like, yo, yo, okay, Jesus, you got it, buddy. Like, looking back to each other, like, Jesus being Jesus again. Like, no idea what you're talking about. Cool, man. So anyways, I'm really hungry, and we don't have any bread. This is kind of their response. And so Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you talking about how you have no bread? And they look up from him again, and they're like, man, I really just want to eat. <laughs> what are you going on about? Anybody been in that position where, like, somebody's trying to tell you something really important, but you've told them five times that you're really hungry, and you just, like, need to eat? And they're like, yeah, so how's everything going? Anyway, so they're, they're probably feeling a bit like that. And Jesus says, why are you talking about how you have no bread? And then he gets deeper, like Jesus does. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? The moment of shock in that question. Are your hearts hardened? What is going on? Jesus is asking. He asks some rhetorical questions. Having eyes, do you not see? Kind of comes off that way. Having ears, do you not hear? Like, imagine if I had an orange in my hand and I said, hey, everybody, this is an orange orange. And you all said to me, is that an orange orange? I'd probably say something snarky like, oh, can you see? Can you hear what I just said? I just said it's an orange orange. It's like, it's like that moment, okay? Jesus is really trying to figure it out, I think. 
He's not just being rhetorical. I mean, he knows, but he's also inquisitive. He's like, what is happening? And then he asks the deepest question of all that should pierce our hearts. Do you not remember? For those of you who are spiritually stagnant, or just beaten down by sin in your life, I want you to hear this question. Do you not remember? Jesus says in verse 19, Hey, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, because I still don't know where he's going with this, maybe. They're like, was it six? Twelve? Twelve? And he says again, okay. In the seven for the four ba- for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces of bread that I made out of seven loaves for four thousand people to eat did you take up? And they said to him, uh, seven. And Jesus said, do you not understand? Maybe, just maybe, in a literal sense, Jesus is kind of there like, hey, you remember how I just four hours ago, fed 4,000 people off seven loaves of bread, and you don't have any bread right now? Maybe you should just ask me for some bread? It's, it's hard to deal with, but don't get tempted to just say, wow, what a bunch of dull shovels those disciples were. How often do we do this? How often do we forget all the things that God has done for us? all the ways that God has saved us, all the miracles that he has performed in our lives, all the ways that he's provided when we were in financial need, all the ways that he's provided when we were in spiritual need, all the ways that he's encouraged our hearts when we were broken. Do you not remember? It is the biggest question. You must ask yourself if you're struggling with faith, if you're struggling with spiritual stagnancy. And the connection of this is this is why in the church we talk about why it's so important to read your Bible. It's not just a thing that we say. Pastorally, I meet with people and I hear them tell me about all the things that are going on in their lives and how all the problems that they're having, and I pop the question and I say, uh, when's the last time you had intimacy with Jesus? When's the last time you read the Bible? When's the last time you looked to him in his word? And nine times out of ten, oh yeah, you know, like, like last week, or, you know, yeah, I do a pretty good job of that, but they don't. I don't sometimes. See, the connection is that Like Hebrews 2, verse 1 says, Be all the more careful to pay attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from it. We have to constantly be dining and feasting on the beautiful words of God himself so that we can be daily exposed to his character to his miracles, to his provision, to who he is, to who he claims to be, to his promises, to how he loves you, how he cares about you, how he wants to help you. And if you are not connected, you will not 
be able to remember, you will continue to slowly drift away. There's a giant ship somewhere in the Pacific Ocean that I think about all the time as an example of this. What happened was the sailors got off and they didn't moor it down correctly. They didn't tie it down correctly to the docks. Okay, it's one of those big shipping ships that ships shipping ships. A shipping ship, yeah. So it's this giant ship. Okay, and what happened is a massive storm came along and the ship got loosened up and floated out to sea. And now you know what it's doing? It's just hanging out. It's hanging out out there. It's been out there for like five years, I think. And people are just kind of waiting for it to wash up on a shore somewhere because that'll be easier to collect it because the amount of manpower and time and resources that it required to like hitch up a bunch of other boats to tow it would be unreasonable. And so there it is, just floating out in the middle of the ocean, covered with seagull, you know what, and clams, or not clams, the types of mollusk that maybe they're clams. It's just nasty. It's just nasty, and it's out there, and it's drifting away. And I think that that's a picture of our spiritual health. When we get disconnected from Jesus as believers, when we become filled with the, the, the evil deception of the leaven of the Pharisees that were warned about this arrogance that we've got it all figured out or that we don't need to still be casting ourselves on you in humility at the feet of Jesus asking him for help that's kind of how we look it's sad and I don't mean pathetic like oh you look sad like you look pathetic I mean like it's sad it's so sad because you don't have to be like that you have to get connected to Jesus and the leaven of the Pharisees that he was warning about is that they had no desire to be connected to God for who he was. They just wanted to be connected to their rules. Leaven is, uh, also means yeast, and in ancient biblical language, it, rep- it expresses the evil disposition in people. It's that which negatively permeates attitude or behavior. It can also be the lies that we tell ourselves, these automatic negative thought patterns that until you get to know Jesus and God through his through daily exposure to the word, you'll never have truth to counter with. You'll never be able to deal with those things. The leaven of the Pharisees is this hypocrisy, this self-righteousness, a bitterness, a pride, an obsession with themselves and their own little systems. And you know what? Satan loves it when you think that you are a good person, that you don't need God. Because no one who justifies their own works of righteousness will be able to see God. We are flawed. We cannot understand righteousness as a total picture. Even what we heighten as saying, oh, this is what morality is. We have varying shades of degrees to which we can't even identify ourselves properly. But God exists totally righteous, totally separated, totally perfect, totally just. And we have to seek that. We have to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees telling ourselves that we don't need God's help. He also warns of the leaven of Herod, which was justifying sexual immorality, saying, Oh, it's not that bad. 
Herod was a political leader in Jesus' time who had unlawfully taken his brother's wife. And it's not really clear in the scriptures if that meant that he killed his brother or like how, how that had even happened. But anyways, he's just like with his, just with his brother's wife now. Imagine being that brother. How ter- how, it's just terrible, right? Just terrible. But you know, the, the leaven of sexual immorality just starts with this, this wrong thought saying, oh, it's not that bad. What I'm doing, it's not that bad. It could be a, it could be a lot worse. But it lays there and it festers in like leaven. It grows as you expose it to the heat of your sinful passions and desires, wanting more out of that instead of running to the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus so that you can be healed from the slavery and bondage of sexual immorality. Political ambition instead of Jesus was also part of his, the leaven, the warning of Herod, the teaching of Herod that were warned about financial success instead of Jesus, the love of money and fame and power instead of Jesus. This leaven of unbelief prevents us from belief in Jesus. Why? Because we tell ourselves that these are the things that we need to keep close and to keep dear so that we can be safe. But they're all always deceiving Sin strains our relationship with Jesus. Sin causes unbelief. It is the depth of Jesus' words when he said, Blessed, happy, full of joy are the poor in spirit, the humble, for they shall see God. What do you do? How do you deal with this all? I want to point you to what happens when Jesus crosses to the other side of the boat after feeding the 4,000, and what Jesus says to the people who are there, it's found in John. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Another way. They were just coming to Jesus for something wrong. They were just just hungry. They wanted more food. Not because they believed in him, but because they wanted to see what they could get from him. Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? If you're crying out today and you're saying, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get all this? What what am I supposed to be doing? How do I fix this problem that I have? How can I have peace with God? How can I have peace with Jesus? How can I be free from the bondage of sin? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent, that you believe in me, Jesus. See, religion says you have to do all of these things so that you can be loved and accepted. But Jesus says, I love you and I accept you. I love you and I accept you. 
That's what Jesus says to you no matter who you are in this room. And he wants you to come to him so that you can be full of spiritual nourishment and encouragement. And out of that you will do. Out of that you will overflow with peace and joy. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Cast yourselves on Jesus. He's the perfect model of love and mercy, and he came to be this bread of life, this provision for all of those who would partake in him. Finally, I want to close with just reading to you, over you, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. It's a verse that God has given me deep comfort through. It's a verse that God has revealed his character to me through. It's a verse that tells me so much about Jesus as Lord and as Savior and as who he truly is. And I want you, I want you to listen well, and I pray that you hear this, what God has to say for you. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat by wine and milk the good things without money and without price. It's free. Peace, forgiveness, joy, healing, they're free. Just come if you're thirsty for these things. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that God can have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the highest heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you that you promise abundant pardon. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us to return to you. Whether we have been in sin and need to repent, you're just waiting. We've been, maybe we've been ignoring you and in our self-righteousness, telling ourselves we don't need you. Maybe we've been so obsessed with thinking about all of our opinions of other things that we've forgotten you. Maybe we've forgotten all the ways that you've worked in our lives. But still, God, you are there, available with a guarantee and a promise that you want to have 
compassion on us. You want to just receive us and love us. That's who you are. Lord, I pray for these people here that you will heal the hardness of their hearts and that they will want to seek you, that they will want your healing, God, that they will run for the hills from the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod and of this world and all the temptations and that they will run straight for you, for you are so much better so much more rich and beautiful and precious. And thank you, God, that this whole salvation thing is all about what you have done because of what we could never do. In Jesus' name, amen.